like steam. It didn't look like much. The engines were big and lossy and required coal and were anchored to the ground and all kinds of things that sort of said, get a horse, get two horses. (laughs) But ultimately, the invention, the industrial age was powered by this new thinking about the mechanistic mode of energy. It was fantastic. And we're living the outcomes and have done for hundreds of years. It made the UK. So in 1947, there was this invention that realistically compared to valves was esoteric, bit shonky, tiny, difficult to make. Who would have thought that it would challenge what was then the mainframe of electronics, the valve, and within about 20 years, there were no more valves, just gone. The transistor uh, just literally changed everything. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff and I discuss the world of silicon, very large-scale integration, or VLSI. The current strategic landscape has the US and Europe in particular investing to bring chip manufacturing back onshore. Over the horizon is the impact of the end of Moore's law on VLSI, as we get to the end of a multi-decade cycle of the doubling of speed and density in transistors. There are some pretty sobering risks for the future of the internet if we can't keep on assuming that faster chips are going to come on down the pipeline next year. Hello, Jeff. Nice to see you again. What should we talk about today? Oh, hi, George. Look, um, I find myself in Silicon Valley at the moment. Ah. And you kind of go, Silicon Valley? What's this? Is this a bit like Iron Ore Valley or Copper Valley? Is there silicon in the rivers? And the answer is no. It was so named because of a certain invention, transistors and We'll get into that in some detail, but I actually want to talk about silicon, and I really want to talk about chips, the currency of networks and computers, and talk about sort of what's going on at the moment and where it's heading, because that's fascinating. So the chips are down, Jeff. Let's talk about silicon. (laughs) The chips are down. I think there were two powerhouses of invention in sort of the middle to the end of the 20th century. One was Xerox, the photocopier company that made some of the most astonishing inventions but ended up still making photocopiers. All this look and feel and workstations and desktops, Xerox. Great bunch of people. Their Palo Alto Research Centre was something else. I've talked a little bit about the building of that research center with people who worked there. Steve Deering spent quite a bit of time there, and he said the construction of the building was deliberately done to encourage people not to hide away, but to have communal spaces where they shared ideas and thought things through. It was quite a radical building in the 60s. I think we all know the people in coding need some quiet time too. 
So that balance of shared time and quiet time, that's really quite interesting. But the point you kind of hit on there is that Xerox was a hell of an idea factory, but somehow they stayed in lane. They didn't burst out to become a mega corporation. They built some of the astonishing foundations of our world and remained a photocopier company. And the other company, which tried very, very hard, was the research arm of the American telephone company of AT&T, named Bell Labs. Now, again, this telephone company really did invent the future, but AT&T lived and ultimately died a telephone company. And in 1947, in Bell Labs, came probably the most significant invention in electronics. It is almost the parallel of the steam engine way back in the, oh, you're pushing the 18th century, in the Age of Enlightenment in Northern England. This was an invention. It was the transistor. Transformative. Yeah. Transformative on the nature of society across the board. So if the first industrial revolution was really about the factory system and steam, transistors they're like the second industrial well, I think they, they were. And, and again, like steam, it didn't look like much. The engines were big and lossy and required coal and were anchored to the ground and all kinds of things that sort of said, get a horse, get two horses. <laughs> but ultimately, the invention, the industrial age was powered by this new thinking about the mechanistic mode of energy. It was fantastic. And we're living the outcomes and have done for hundreds of years, it made the UK. So in 1947, there was this invention that realistically compared to valves was esoteric, bit shonky, tiny, difficult to make. Who would have thought that it would challenge what was then the mainframe of electronics, the valve? And within about 20 years, there were no more valves, just gone. The transistor uh, just literally changed everything. So the invention, sort of people knew that this was going to change things and there was an awful lot of work done very, very quickly to change the original uh, point contact germanium crystal. They went through various forms of junctions to try and make it more manufacturable. Philips joined in, Philco in their surface barrier, and then they invented various forms of diffused bases and so on. And interestingly, in the mid-50s, a bunch of them left Bell Labs and started up this new company called Fairchild in what became Silicon Valley. They left the east coast of the US and their terrible icy winters and decided that California was for them. If I remember correctly, Fairchild's full name is Fairchild Semiconductor, and the whole basis of what a transistor is was the discovery of this material that lies halfway between a resistor and a conductor, a semiconductor, that has interesting properties. Diodes had been invented before transistors came along, but the uplift of something that could do more than just do a direction filter, which is what a diode does, that was truly huge. Right. It actually mirrored the same property as valves, that you could have a huge amount of voltage, 
potential between, let's call it the emitter and the base, a huge amount of voltage. And in between the two, you have this small gate. And a tiny amount of voltage applied to the gate can control the huge voltage. It's almost like the tap on a water system. So this tiny amount of effort can turn on the fire hose or turn it off. So instantly, like a valve was able to do, the transistor was a solid state version of this sort of electronic controlled amplification. Now, interestingly, we're already using valves for computers because this kind of controlled switching not only gives you analog amplifiers, but you can actually use it as on-off, as switches. And the world's first computers were basically just huge, huge bunches of valve machines. And the major problem was the more valves you put in, the less reliable the whole system came. And most of the time, you spent all your time looking through the vast array of wires and valves looking for the dead one. Yeah, valves aren't mechanical in quite the sense relays are. Mechanical things wear out because the parts are moving, but valves heat up. They emit a lot of heat energy, and that means that they shrink and grow. It's hard to make thermally stable devices. They're temperamental, and they also don't actually react instantly. So alongside reliability, you have a time problem. There's kind of a minimum settling time for a signal in a valve to go where you want it to go. The really sweet thing about transistors, aside from reliability, is they're fast. Well, they were fast, but they were fiddly to make up until 1959, when the next amazing invention came out of Bell Labs, but jumped on by Fairchild, the MOSFET, metal oxide silicon field effect transistor. And all of a sudden, the manufacturing process was so much simpler. So they'd been in germanium and other substances, and they jumped over the fence from germanium to silicon. With the doped germanium as well. So it was the same system, but instead of actually putting a break between the emitter and the collector, you actually just put them near each other as a gate and use the field effect. Same outcome, but oddly enough, much easier to make. And you could take a large wafer of a base and put two together, three together, four. You could build circuits on silicon. So all of a sudden, MOSFET allowed the construction of what we called pretty quickly VLSI, very large scale integration. So rather than just a transistor. We probably stepped over integration through large-scale integration before we hit very large, but it was a pretty steep ramp up, wasn't it? Dreams were enormous, George. The pace was frightening. This stuff was just leaping over itself. There were new inventions and new processes almost every month. It was a wild time in the very early 60s. And it was actually in 1965 that One of the folk working at, well, he became Intel, but there was this story about the rebellious eight that left Fairchild because share bonuses, stock conditions, I don't know. They left and formed Intel. And Gordon Moore had made the prediction in 1965 
that the number of components per integrated circuit had doubled every year since 1959. And based on that six years of observation, he said, ah, it'll be fine for another decade. We can keep on perfecting this process and making it bigger, very large-scale integration, and keep on doing this for another decade. Now, think about that for a second. He reckons that's going to double every year for 10 years. That's two to the 10th. That's a thousand-fold more devices on one wafer, on one substrate, on one piece of silicon, a thousand times. I can't think of a technological advancement that year on year has been capable of delivering that kind of rate of exponential growth, doubling growth. There's been nothing like it in prior history as far as I can see. Right. It's pretty wild. And I think in 65, it was just a bit of a, you know, finger in the air. Oh, doubling sounds good. But it happened. And when they came back, and asked him again in 75, well, Gordon, you were right then. What do you reckon now? And he said, well, oh, it's getting a bit harder. I reckon it'll double every two years for the next 10 years. Now, again, that's still really big. It's 41% per year. And again, it wasn't really empirical. It was just finger in the air. So if you start this world making one transistor, and you want to make building blocks to build digital logic, you kind of have to wire together with a soldering iron four of them to make the primitive object that's going to wind up being the basis of a logic gate, a thing that can be either a nor or a not or an and or an xor. You have to glue those together to then build up from them something that's going to represent a stable one or zero bit or the logic gates to perform arithmetic on a one or zero. So if you start with one, and you go through a year of doubling and you hit two or three devices, you've kind of reached the point where you can have one logic gate in a single thing. And if you then go through another year, you've gone through enough doublings that you're starting to get three or four of those gates on a single thing. And to me, that's something that I started to be aware existed once I realized you could buy chips that encoded one or two or four or eight of these gates. It's not very large-scale integration up at the level of how many building blocks I have, but down beneath, there was actually quite a lot of transistors inside this thing. And you're saying, well, every single year, the amount of transistors you could fit in the same area of silicon was doubling. And when things got up to speed, it kind of hit two years. That's phenomenal rate of increase. Doubling is frightening. The Dear old Psylogic Z80 had about 5,000 transistors on it. Today, the state of the art is 80 trillion. Doubling is scary. And I suppose we're going to get to what this means and that maths in a second, but I want to just stop and think about where we are. Because in the same way that the UK had, if you will, been the catalyst for the Industrial Revolution, not Europe, and had actually managed to capitalise on that and created, amongst other factors, but, you know, the Industrial Age was a huge component of wealth generation in that country for the next 100, 200 years. The same happened in America with the car industry, 
in the 1930s, every single car on the planet was basically built in America. And it, again, generated enormous wealth. There is a feeling, and I don't think they're wrong, that the chip business is today's wealth generator for the world. Everything Mm. has chips in it. You buy a modern automobile and there are at least 300 processors sitting in there computing, and that's not even a self-driving car. That's a standard off-the-line vehicle. Your washing machine, every appliance, chips are everywhere. And so there's this feeling that the folk who make the chips are the folk who generate the revenue. And at this point, that's the feeling. There's that nuance of the emergence of intellectual property rights, because sometimes it's not the people who make the goddamn things, it's the people who design them and hold the licensing rights to them. But I think the substance remains the same. It's really not different to be the guys designing incredibly complex machines that have to be made in silicon and actually running the factory. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I think there is this feeling that I want everything. You see, right now, right now, American chip makers account for one third of global semiconductor sales revenue. The Intels of this world make a lot of chips. None of these leading chips, zero are actually made in the United States of America. They're all made elsewhere. They own the intellectual property rights and generate all this revenue from them, but the chips are made predominantly in Taiwan, in South Korea, and in China. Now, the US is looking at this over in the political level going, ooh, we don't think we like this. What happened to our all-American chip business? And the answer was, well, it went somewhere else. It went through a number of somewhere else's because before they wound up in these locations, there was substantial investment by US chip companies in plants in Central and South America and to some extent in Europe, although frankly, the European ones kind of withered on the vine a bit. So they were moving around the planet looking for somewhere to settle on that had the right magic mix of technological know-how a labor force that was going to remain cheap, and also the design skills to actually take the ideas they had and translate them into real product. And it seems like it did get stuck in South Korea and Taiwan, yes. Well, the output is physically tiny. You can send this stuff through mail order. So it didn't actually matter where on the planet you built this thing was the theory. So they went cheap. But of course, Some parts of the world are politically a little bit more challenging than others, and depending on who you are, and if you're the United States, you can look at some of these countries going, oh, not completely happy. And so in 2022, the US enacted this package. Federal funds of 50 billion US dollars, that's much more than the Australian's lotties, um, <laughs> to try and lure the chip manufacturers back to the United States. Now, that wasn't design, that was actually building at the fab plants. So that goes to the strategic drive that they were comfortable they had a lead in technological design and they were comfortable they had access to companies that could leverage their technological skills to make faster and smaller and lower power chips, but they weren't comfortable that it happened outside their own boundaries of domestic control. 
Right. So the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TMSC, is a classic case in point. They do not design chips. But you can go to that factory, and as long as you have a great design and some money <laughs> and promises to buy the product, they will build your chip for you. So they are almost a pure factory. They don't design the chips, they just manufacture them, and they do it very efficiently. And so there's increasingly this sort of the design and so on is elsewhere, but the fab plants are built in locations where they're able to scale this up. But the US is looking at this going, but we think strategically we feel pretty vulnerable. There was this feeling in Australia in the 1940s that we needed a domestic car industry because politics, vulnerability, well, bad things happen. We're going to need industrial capability onshore. And I think that argument has transposed into the digital age, in particular in America, we're going to need digital capacity inside the country. We actually don't just want to design them, we really want to build them. And that's what $50 billion is saying. So $50 billion does sound like a huge amount of money to re-establish the industry of actually physically making chips onshore. But I'm starting to wonder... How much does a modern age fab plant, fabrication plant for chips cost to build? Because these machines, the chips, demand really quite expensive machines to be made. I mean, we're at the level now where earthquakes stop the production line. <laughs> well, yes. So it costs a lot. The actual investment that's happening in the US, it's been announced, is four times that now. So that 50 billion has leveraged another 150 billion. 200 billion is going into new fab plants in the US. And the claim is they're going to make 18% of the world's leading chips. I stress the word leading. Leading says three nanometer track or finer. So 18% of the best chips, the high-end chips, the chips with this astonishing gate count, will be made in the United States. So yeah. that's the announcement. How long does it take to build a plant? In the US, it takes three years, a little under, but three years. So many approvals. It uses so much water, and the water has to be ultra, ultra, ultra clean. And three years, all the approvals, etc. In Taiwan or in other countries, under two years. So that's a factor. Labor in America is more expensive. Yeah. Taiwan, quite aside from geopolitical issues, also has problems that its water supply has been coming under more and more strain. And so they actually can't guarantee some of the issues like persisting water supply necessary for future growth in chip. Funny you should say that. So they had a drought and that imperiled chip production a couple of years ago. But inside the US, there was a bit of a contest between the states as to who could attract all this money. And the winner, that um, drum roll, was Arizona. Now, Nevada has less water than Arizona, but only a little less. The Colorado, the mighty Colorado, is perhaps better named as a trickle. The water table in Phoenix is falling. Water is, to put it politely, scarce in Arizona. Now, here is a chip manufacturing facility. They want to put in a number of these fab plants where it takes a few swimming pools of water, ultra-clean water, and it takes even more swimming pools to purify the water to get to ultra-clean water, and they're going to site it in Arizona. 
and you've got to ask, you've got to mm. build some leading-edge water recycling technology. I know you've got a lot of sun and, you know, you need a huge amount of solar panels out there in order to recycle the kind of water you're talking about because it doesn't flow through Arizona naturally. So bizarrely, the plant costs more to build, the labour costs more in that state, water is incredibly expensive, and yet they're building. So I have read that matching this investment by the USA to get TSMC to site domestically within the US borders, the Europeans have invested, if not that large, comparable sums to make an EMSC company, that EMSC, ESMC <laughs> company that will be based within the borders of Europe, but they're targeting not the leading bleeding edge generation, but one or two steps back. And their primary concern was motivated from the supply chain disruption that affected the motor industry. At one point, the entire world dependency on chips was limiting the production capacity of cars. Right. And so Europe has looked at the field and has said, well, we're in a strategic relationship with America for bleeding edge chips. We can rely on two sources, Taiwan and the States. We're a little concerned about the economic risks of not having access to the ones a couple of grades back. Let's make them here. You know, interestingly, and the Europeans should take some heart, some, the lithography these days for, you know, three nanometer tracks is way up at the extreme end of the ultraviolet range. The only machinery that does this is manufactured in Holland, in the Netherlands. Ah, single, so we're in the story. Supply. Who made millions in the gold rush? It was the guy selling the shovel. That's right. So who makes millions in the VLSI rush? It's the Dutch making the machines. The Dutch making the machines. And the other part of this is TMSC will continue to actually invest more money in Taiwan than they're going to invest in the US. Samsung is going to invest more money in Korea than it is in America. Intel is going to invest more money elsewhere than in the US. So this $200 billion is, if you will, a minor part of the worldwide investment in more chips. And of course, China is also going to be investing in domestic production to make sure that they are not excluded from this technology. Well, the issue is, of course, what kind of chips do you want to build? If you want to stay, let's say, three years off bleeding edge and you drop below wider than 28 nanometers, chip manufacturing is actually quite cheap at that point. It's very well known. And these days, one third of the 28 nanometer and bigger chips are made in China, and sorry, one-fifth, and pretty shortly it's about to be one-third. So the stuff that does go in your washing machine, in your automatic doors and so on, the folk who still make Z80s, they're all Chinese. So in some ways this fascination with the bleeding edge is kind of distracting us from the true volume industry. So I think it's reasonable to include, conclude that you know, chip fabrication is going to remain in Asia. You know, it just is. And the work of the Americans and the Europeans to try and get some of this stuff on board is in some ways, I don't know, it's not paranoia. There are legitimate concerns out there. And we have had some hiatus in supply lines. COVID has seen that. And it's certainly more reassuring to know that some of your stuff is under your control. 
But I think there's more than this. You see, Gordon Moore was right in 65. He was right in 75. And he's still sort of right sort of today, but he probably won't be right tomorrow. You think we are at the beginning of the end. It's not the end of the beginning. It really is the beginning of the end. So in 1971, the tracks in VLSI were 10 micrometers, 10 millionths of a millimeter wide. A year, 10 years later, it was one-tenth of that, doubling every year, you know, 1.5 micrometers, 1981. Let's move forward by 20 years and we'd gone a thousandfold. So we're now instead of you know, millionths of a millimetre, sorry, millionths of a metre, we're now at billions. So in 2001, we have 130 nanometres, 130 billionths of a metre. In 2010, we'd gone from 130 to 32. In 2022, we feel confident we can build three billionths of a metre. Now, at this point, you're stretching the capabilities of radio, drawing a chart here. So where would you cast the slope of this line if you imagined you were drawing a line through this? Is it still a reasonably smooth line? Because the line trend would be Moore's Law still reigns, but you're hinting at this line is not going to go on forever. This is the problem. We've been basically making the tracks one-tenth of their size 10 years before that, and have been doing that consistently since the early 70s. So every 10 years, the tracks are one-tenth thinner. We're now down to three nanometers. And at some point, atoms get in the way because atoms are big. So transistors always represented the physical properties of the junction between two materials. And so across that boundary, to all intents and purposes, a boundary is a almost dimensionless thing. It just is. It's atoms in contact. But the effect we were driving at was way up the scale. It wasn't really about the movement of electrons in single digit counts across that boundary. You're now talking in ways that mean we're down at the level where In the region of scale, we can count the number of atoms that we consider form part of a gate, and it's no longer a million atoms form a gate. It might only be a thousand atoms that form a gate or less. And we really are approaching the limits of the behavior of electrons in single-digit counts moving between these atoms. So to build them, it's almost as if we have to pick up each atom with a pair of atomic tweezers and drop them into place. This is pushing lithography to its absolute limit, even to get three nanometers out of it. And it's likely we will do a little bit better. But will we get to 0.3 of a nanometer in 10 years? And I'm not sure anyone is saying that's going to happen. We are stretching this really far in terms of the manufacturing process. And don't forget these days, 80 trillion gates are on a single chip. So you don't just do it once, you do it 80 trillion times. So there's two or three things that I think we could explore here that are worth thinking about. Why did it matter that things were getting smaller? Because it's not like my handset, my telephone has shrunk to the size 
of human hair. So physical goods in the real world remain the size that is useful for real world things. The reason the chips get smaller, there are three things. They use less energy, which means the battery lasts longer, and they run faster because there is less physical distance involved, and so things can run faster. And the third thing is, if there are more components, they can do more complex things. Now, what you've just said is, year on year, purely because the width of the lines was dropping, we got faster and we got smaller, so we could have more of them. And you've just said that might be coming that to an end. That might be coming to an end. So certainly more gates on a chip matters because of the complexity of the algorithm you can stuff into a chip. There's a beautiful figure about the bandwidth of a piece of fiber optic cable and the track width of the digital signal processor. If you want terabits per second out of a wavelength in fiber, terabits, not gigabits, but terabits, you need as an absolute precondition seven nanometer tracks in your digital signal processor. Larger tracks, I can't put as many gates onto that digital signal processor. I cannot do the signal regeneration to the level that I need for that signal, that many points in Fourier wave space. So the Right. You imagine that a chip implements an algorithm by passing things along the line left to right. There is a limit to the distance left to right you can go to have this thing deliver an outcome from a signal coming in. And if you know you're signaling on the left side more rapidly than it can pass through the machinery, you can't actually process those signals any faster. Right. So it's the complexity. So let's kill another one while we're killing some of these myths. They're not getting faster. They stopped getting faster Way. about 15 years ago. So getting smaller stopped meaning gets faster. Right. The Apple M1 chip, five nanometer technology, bought out in 2020, 3.2 gigahertz clock. Right. That's as fast as a three gigahertz, whatever it was from 10 years ago. Clock speeds haven't changed. Even the M1 Max is 3.2 gigahertz clock. Now it has 57 trillion gates, trillion. It's a mighty chip and it's got 10 cores. It sings, but it still runs the same clock speed. So oddly enough, we're now down to the plan B of making things faster. Once you can't up the clock speed, once you just can't make things go faster, you stuff more in. And the problem with going parallel is that that's linear growth. It's not exponential anymore. Well, it's also, it's not just that it's linear. The complexities of solving problems in parallel necessarily starts to introduce points where you just can't do two things at once. So 222, 122, 222 things running all together at the same time aren't always going to be able to do everything all together at the same time. Right. So we've talked a little bit about processing in chips, but I suspect, although I haven't seen the numbers, that there are more memory chips than processor chips. 
if we just stood at the other end of the factory and <laughs> counted the chips that come out and go, you're a processor chip, plus one for processors, you're a memory chip, plus one for memory, you'd find a huge number of memory chips. Memory is really what drives this industry, right? So memory is an interesting story too, and it's an even more concerning story. In 1998, we invented this te technique called DDR, which was to actually up the throughput of memory. And for 1998, this was pretty impressive, 3.2 gigabytes per second. You could make a query in a DDR memory bank and get an answer in 134 nanoseconds. That's fast. The cost per gigabyte, 78 bucks a gigabyte. Fine. Now, the industry kept on applying Moore's Law. So 10 years later, in 2003, DDR2. Throughput, tripled, 8 gigabytes per second. Latency. So better than Moore's Law in terms of speed. Latency only dropped from 134 nanosecond to 122. Oops. And interestingly, though, the dollars per gig plummeted by a factor of 10, from 78 bucks to 9 bucks. You go, right, let's do this again. So DDR3, 2007. Well, the throughput's doubled, 17 gigs. The latency hasn't halved. It's about 80 nanoseconds. And the dollars per gig hasn't come down by a factor of 10. It's only come down by a factor of three. So we're getting some complexities emerging in this conversation how does memory get better? And the answer is, well, it continues to some extent to give you a lot more information, but the increments over last time about how quickly a single piece of information will come isn't as good as it used to be. And the increment in how cheap it is isn't as good as it used to be. So for your modeling of, oh, I can fix this with more memory being read, it slightly shifted the space. Well, as long as you're doing different things and you're reading a stream of data, this memory is faster. But if you're doing random access to lots of things, it's not as much faster as you the thought. latency then counts because random access, it takes latency time. State of the art today, DDR5, DDR6 is a couple of years away. Throughput, 57 gigs if you're pulling down a train of data. But the random access latency... 72 nanoseconds, no change. And the cost per gig, wow. still three bucks. It's actually slightly more expensive than DDR4. It's kind of whoops. So, this has come to a halt. so CPUs, the machines that do the real work, were improving in a qualitative sense on a exponential growth doubling, one year rising to two years, reached a wall starting to slow down. Answer? gang up more CPUs, what do we do in memory? Memory, well, it can handle more independent things talking to it and give them data as long as you're streaming it. Start doing random access. It's also slowing down its rate of improvement and it's not getting cheaper. This is kind of coming to the same place. We're not getting cheaper and we're not getting faster. You see, you can't really change the design of memory. It's a transistor and a capacitor. And no matter how you think about it, it's a transistor and a capacitor. Unlike a CPU where you've got so many variables to try and squeeze performance, optimize this case, optimize that, in memory it's kind of, it's a transistor and a capacitor. What's your problem? And so when we look at the cost per gate, then things are important for memory because when we moved 
down into just below 28 millimeter track widths, the cost got constant. So it's about a dollar forty-two per gate to manufacture and has been since 20 nanometers. So 10, 7, 3, cost the same per gate. Now I could kind of say, yeah, but what's this got to do with the internet? Because after all, computer memory and CPU seems a long way from networks. But a few minutes back, you pointed out that the limits to signal processing for dealing with optical data is actually in the complexity of a computer and its ability to handle the input stream, and it's very tightly coupled to the line width in VLSI. And the second thing that you've talked about in other episodes of Ping is that routing complexity means that you either have to have incredibly expensive memory, dual-ported TCAM-style memory, or you need a lot of memory to do something like a tree. And you've just said memory isn't getting faster and CPUs aren't getting faster and they're not getting cheaper as much as they used to. So, Jeff, is there an impact for the internet? It still costs these days $1.50 US for 100 million gates in a chip. And that's been the case since we've been using 28 millimeter track width. And the issue behind this is actually there was a change at 28 millimeters. We could no longer use what we call planar FETs, where in essence, the source and the collector sit in one plane and the gate sits on top. When you get the track so narrow, doesn't work like that anymore. You have to increase the contact area. So instead of having the, the gate just sitting on top, squatting on the conductor underneath it, you've actually got to put fins on the conductor. So instead of just being an etching on the surface, it actually is a little wall vertically. It sort of is up higher above the source of the silicon oxide to increase the contact area across the gate. So these so-called fin fets are expensive to make, but that's the only way you get track widths thinner than 28 nanometers. So the only way I get 14, 9, 5, and 3 nanometer tracks is to use fin fets. And fin fets are expensive. $1.50 per million gates on a chip. And no matter how thin you go, it's the same price. So all of a sudden, volume, scale, and economies don't quite work in your favor. Things get harder. Mm. But it's worse than that, if it could possibly be worse than that. You know what I said about all this water? <laughs> yeah. At 28 nanometers, evidently, there's about 350 process steps to make a chip. And of that, about 10% of cleaning uses a lot of water. At 10 nanometers, it's a little over 600 process steps. It takes a long time to cook a chip. At 5 nanometers, it's 1,200 process steps. It takes weeks to cook a chip. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of water and a huge amount of work a huge amount of work. So all of a sudden, you might be able to double the number of gates on a chip, but the cost per gate hasn't changed. The actual you know, the chip costs you more now because there's more going on. And of course, the yeah. ultra-pure water 
All this stuff is working against us. So thinner actually means the purity of the water needs to be even more pure than it used to be. The number of steps you've got to go through is more than it used to be. And then last and not least, you remember the Dutch and that machine? Mm. That machine that does the lithography? Well, at 28 nanometers or less, you have to use light of a wavelength somewhere between 10 and 100 nanometers. And for three nanometers, you write up 10 is is even too coarse. Is it still even light? I don't know. It's just a little bit off radiation, isn't it? It's close to an X-ray. And you could call it an X-ray at around 10 nanometers. So let's think about the machine that does the lithography just for a second. Are you allowed to have air in the machine? Well, no. Are you allowed to even pass it through a lens? Well, no. Oddly enough, you can only use mirrors. It's an astonishing piece of work to actually do the lithography now, the etching. Yeah. So So the company that makes the machines, that makes the chips, is starting to scratch its head a bit about how it can make machines to make the chips. Well, don't forget the machines we're using now took a few decades of research and a few tens of billions of dollars just to make this one. And the disturbing observation is that they did it despite almost all the physicists on the planet going, you're nuts, it's never going to work, and all the engineers agreeing. There's no plan B. Mm. There's no new machine just waiting to use some great new process. There isn't. This is it. And so we're reaching some real limits, and it's kind of fascinating. You say, ah, but but processes are only getting better. Well, sort of, sort of, but the way we make modern chips is actually we spend more money on their design It's not just the arithmetic and logical unit talking to a memory bus, talking to this, talking to that. There's actually a huge amount of thought as to why you've got these 80 trillion gates on this chip. And a lot of the cost in doing this is now the cost of design, not the cost of actually manufacturing it. So chip designs are actually all about increasing performance in terms of clever design than they are just brute force up the clock and make it go faster because that's not the way we do it anymore. Meantime, up in the things built out of chips, we've had companies built that pretty much assumed they had guarantees of income increase based on the improvement, the improved productivity, the improved availability of speed in their technological shifts. And it starts to sound a bit like well, you may not actually be able to give me a bigger machine next time without me having to spend a lot more money to get it, despite the fact that I need faster, bigger internet in a lot of places. So the economic consequences of the supply chain of technology not reducing input costs year on year is really going to be quite visible in what people do buying technology. I'm going to have to stop and think about my upgrades. (laughs) Well, you're going to have to stop and think about a lot of things because we've had it easy so far. We've just bought general purpose computing modules, an Intel Xeon, an AMD 64, an engine, and you stuff it into somewhere and put some code on it that kind of works. 
if you're really into performance, you might do a, a customized ASIC, but it's expensive, it's esoteric, and if you can write good software and put it on a standard AMD device, it's a lot cheaper and a lot easier. But that was predicated on if I make it work at a tolerable speed on this year's generation, next year, it's going to be a lot faster. And that isn't true anymore. You see, what if I now have to customize what's on the chip and use a certain amount of DRAM on the chip, a certain amount of some kind of high bandwidth memory sitting right beside the CPU? What if I can't build a general purpose computer chip anymore, but I actually need to custom design to eke performance for the application I'm after so that now there are no more general purpose devices, but the chip that makes my watch work might not be the same chip that makes my router work or my washing machine work. In fact, I know they won't. So do you remember a rather interesting talk that John Scudder gave in IEPG quite a number of years ago about the variance in cost for a network protocol passing through hardware and software? He talked quite a lot about the design burden in line card manufacture dealing in hardware with new features in a protocol and the assumption that you had enough case capacity in an FPGA or ASIC to process something. So you're actually getting quite close to that idea here, Jeff. If we want to see terahertz speed network processing, we have to make design decisions in line cards and in radio cards in phones and in routers that become locked into silicon. We can't just change the way the protocol works. And so you can't just use an Apple M1 chip anymore. You can't just use a Xeon 8480 Sapphire Rapids anymore. It's not good enough. If you want performance, then you've got to have your own design. But all of a sudden, you're talking your own design at astronomical prices for a production run of how many? And all of a sudden, the industry starts to look at this going, oh, do you really need those terabits down the fiber? Because I don't think we can afford them anymore. You see, we always worked on the coattails in the networking industry of the larger computing industry. We used general purpose computing chips. By and large, we, we kept ahead of the, of the game. But we're now finding that the game is actually giving us some real walls. And while we can design our way out from the immediacy of the problem, that if you want a particular application to go fast, you can actually put so many cores, so much memory on board, etc. We see it with some of these uh, Dofino chips, which are heavily custom made for just that piece of work. But Intel isn't making a lot of money building Tofino chips, is it? No. Because the demand is scary small and the costs to build it are scary big. And we might see effects where people say, I've designed a really interesting new feature in the network protocol to do multi-path TCP a particular way. And chip designers are going to say, well, at the switching speeds, we're seeing packets arriving off the wire. I can't deliver that to you in volume for possibly another year to 18 months. And I need a guarantee from you, you won't vary the spec on this while I do it. Well, let me put it very plainly and simply in a current debate, actually in the IEPG right now, there's this feature in, in IPv6 called extension headers. And there's one particular extension header where you demand the attention of every router. It's called hop by hop. And basically the packet has to make a detour 
through some kind of processing system on the router because that extension says, hey, look at me, I probably have some instructions for you. Now, if you want ultra-fast and you want full compliance with IPv6, you're in a world of hurt because you can't deliver both anymore. It just isn't feasible. And so the folk who are madly designing protocol features in underlying networks and simply assuming that the network will always catch up, now we have to consider and rethink because as we talk and think about networks in terabit speeds, think about what a terabit really is. You have a few nanoseconds per packet. Nanoseconds. Yeah, you have a few tiny distances on a chip that you can process that signal before your buffering has to double or triple or quadruple to deal with the backlog because you can't process it fast enough. That's right. You just can't. And, and we can't keep pace. And so you're back to kind of, as long as I make the network fast and stupid, I've got a hope, at least for the next 10 years, of keeping pace with the photons. I've got a hope. It's not a big hope, but I think it is possible. You want features with that? Nah, just isn't going to happen. And all the mania years ago over MPLS and and short addressing plans and network state, I think was about 30 years too early because as we try and squeeze more capacity out of the system now, we might go back into those short addressing modes because it might give us back even three or four processing cycles per packet. And quite frankly, it might get to the point where we really need three or four processing cycles to put back in the bank just to keep pace with the photon blitz that's happening. Wow. I look forward to an IETF meeting where we decide to take Quicken TCP and discuss what we can take out of the protocols to make them fast enough to run on the silicon we're stuck with. Oh, I always stop the view that a transport protocol is none of the network's business. And I think it's about time that that came back with a vengeance. Don't look beyond IP, yeah. you know, just it's not your business, stop it. But we may well be saying that IP, the protocol in four and six, has to stop adding features and think very hard about simplifying the packet structure and header processing cost so that processors have at least a chance of keeping on top. Well, if we want a network for the world, if we want a network that's cheap, if we want a network that's fast, if we want a network that's good, you know, the the trinity, good, fast and cheap, then what Silicon is saying to us is, Stop adorning this stuff. Stop making it more complex because we're having a hard enough time looking forward five years going bigger, faster, cheaper. Oh, this is going to hurt. And I think it will. It will hurt. It'll be fun. It'll be fun to build, but it's going to be a challenge because the infinite space of silicon is now looking decidedly cramped and we're hitting some real barriers now about how we can make bigger, faster, better in silicon. And that's going to mean, how do you make bigger, faster, better in networks? So the next five years, fun times for all. Yep. It's going to be a very interesting future, Jeff. We're going to have to watch a couple more of these Moore's Law cycles to see how things play out. That's been really interesting. I've certainly had fun too. And for those who want to see some doom and gloom, a networking research workshop 
at the last IETF meeting, IETF 117 in San Francisco, the keynote presentation on, I think, what he had, had called dramatically the end of DRAM or the death of memory as we knew it is well worth listening to because it goes through a lot of these issues around where are the limits in memory and what does it mean for us? So if, if this interest or this, this quick conversation has piqued your interest, let me point you over there for someone who has spent a lot more time looking at it than me and what it really means for us. I'll make sure that the ANRW links that you've mentioned just now are posted up on the entry when we put this podcast online, Jeff. That's really great. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you, George. And thank you, listeners, if you caught this this far. And I hope you're not too depressed. It just means more work. Nothing gets easier. Thank you, George. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.